a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Graham Turner from Top Deck, Flight Centre and Spices Retreats. Running top deck in your 20s, it is a stressful job running old double-decker buses across Europe and Asia and uh, having breakdowns and accidents and that sort of thing. So, you know, running a travel agency, it's a doddle. You know, after what we've done with top deck, running shops all over the place uh, is nothing. Graham Turner, or Screw as he's universally known, is one of Australia's greatest founders. He grew up on an apple orchard in regional Queensland where he went to a one-teacher school. And when he was 15, Screw went to a boarding school in Toowoomba. And he said compared to helping out on the farm, boarding school was a breeze. But from an early age, it became clear that Screw wasn't going to take over the family farm. But he didn't think he'd go into business necessarily either. It was a family affair. Um, Dad used to um, not only use me for um, labour and all that sort of thing, but he used to talk about um, things that he was doing and, you know, the I suppose the slight the small entrepreneurial things he was doing. So you, you were brought up all the time to think about it as a business. There's no doubt about that. And, um, you know, how how to um, the sort of things that cost you money and the sort of things where you could do a bit better. We, we were mainly apples, peaches, plums and pears. Yeah, being post-war, this was mainly in the 50s and uh, 60s. You know, the fruit prices generally were pretty good. Uh, there was a reasonable demand. So, yeah, we were involved. As a family, you were involved, and you did talk a fair bit about how the business was going and that. But um, I don't I don't think there was a huge amount of um, talking about entrepreneurship, and it certainly, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't the most exciting life, I can assure you. <laughs> it was one of those things that, um, you know, there's, there was wasn't there was you had the radio later on we got TV but that was just before, basically I'd left home then uh, so it was uh, listening to the radio at night uh, playing cards with maybe with the neighbours but we saw very few people most of the time so so it was a pretty um, pretty quiet life all all around um, that that's why I, I sort of determined at the time that I didn't think I really wanted to be a farmer like many people in travel you didn't study, I don't think there even is a wasn't back then a tourism course. You you actually became a, a veterinary surgeon. You were 23, 24, and you moved to England to become a vet and to work as a vet. Was that always sort of the – you always wanted to live overseas, work overseas? Was that, was that sort of long-term? Yeah, well, we, I, my first job uh, basically from about uh, November, December after graduation till about July when um, – we, a group of us had already from college had decided to go to the um, Munich Olympics in 1972. So we um, went over there and um, then travelled around Europe for a while in a, you know, a combi van, the typical thing Australians did then, before going back to the, went back to the UK and um, then uh, I worked as a locum for the next, I don't know, six, eight, 12 months and uh, before we started Top Deck. That's a great segue. So I'd love to talk about 
your first business, which is Top Deck. So you're in your you're in England, your early twenties, and I think uh, your mate Jeff Lomas and you decided to buy a double decker bus and start a tour business. Which I guess now you look in hindsight, it seems obvious, but it sounds outrageous almost to, to buy a bus and start a business. And you guys were a couple of vets. What was the? How did you get the idea? Well, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. We we actually traveling around Europe. Um, in the combis, we saw the odd, you know, I think one or two double-decker buses, English double-deckers fitted out with beds and kitchen and this sort of thing. So I was back working as a vet in Yorkshire and um, there was this old airfield, old World War II airfield that was um, just covered in uh, second-hand double-decker buses, you know, and I, I had a vet student with me at the time. We'd just been to see a horse, I remember. I can't remember what was wrong with the horse, but we um, – went and had a look at it and, and there was one bus that it had, had actually been fitted out by someone. It had beds, bunk beds and, and the full full fit out of kitchen and uh, just after that I had um, gone to the beer fest um, and Jeff Lomas was there and uh, over a few steins I convinced him that he should come in with me and we should all, um, you know, 50-50 uh, buy the bus and uh, he went travelling, I went up to uh, Leeds, I think, the village was called Sherburn in Elmet and um, bought the bus and drove it back uh, to um, our our flat in Fulham, which was uh, uh, the neighbours weren't very happy about us parking double-decker bus in the street in Fulham, but that's that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go back to the bus for a second. So uh, I presume buses aren't that cheap, even this is obviously not a brand-new bus, but how much did the bus cost you guys? This one cost us about £650. It was called Argus. Uh, the next one uh, was Tuft, and I think oh, I'd say probably a thousand pounds for it. It was fitted out as well. But then the next three, oh no, no Grunt was the second one, which was I think about three or four hundred pounds, but it wasn't fitted out. Tuft was fitted out, and it was about a thousand pounds. But then we bought. I remember we bought three. Probably after about twelve months, we'd been going about twelve months. And the three of them unfitted out was seven hundred and fifty pounds, two hundred fifty pounds each. So you know, not ridiculously expensive. Uh, even even so, you were running a tour business, not a, not a retail agent. So you obviously had significant capital, or some sort of capital costs. Was that all from your savings, or where did you guys get the money to even afford any of these any of these buses? Yeah, we certainly didn't have any bank loans, and we didn't have a lot of capital. I think I think we. You know, as I said, I think £650 for the first bus. But then we were taking about £100 a person for the trip. The first trip we ran in um, November 73 was a Spain, Portugal, Moroccan. We charged about £100. And I think we ended up with about 18 passengers on it. So we had about 18, £1,800. Uh, food kitty was £3.50 a week. So that was separate. And um, then when we came back, I think it, I think the trip cost us, you know, something like eight hundred pound or nine hundred pound to run. So we had that, that excess over that. We invested in new buses, and that's how we did it. We just kept um, buying new buses when we had the cash. And uh, yeah, as you can imagine, uh, banks wouldn't loan us money, and we didn't have much money. I think I don't know between the three of us. Bill James, a passenger on the first trip, came in. He was a teacher and uh, he bought the bus and fitted it out. That was his sort of contribution to the company. So we didn't have much money. You know, we might have all had about 
total capital of about twelve to fifteen hundred pound each. So um, yeah, money was in fairly short supply. But uh, and we and in the seventy nine eighty, we um, pretty much nearly ran out of cash. We had, I think, we had sixty or seventy buses by that stage, and um, we had trouble paying our bills. But uh, that was an important lesson as well. Not long after you started the business, I think Jeff had to come back to Australia for, for personal reasons. And as you said, Bill, who became a big part of the story uh, and was a passenger, joined the business. Was it Were you guys 50-50 partners at the time or was Jeff still have a shareholding? How, how did you guys split ownership back then? Jeff and I were 50-50. Um, when he left, uh, Bill and I were 50-50. Then um, – Mick Carroll came in. He was a relatively early passenger and he came in a little later and I think I was 50% and um, they were both uh, 25. That was for some two or three years until I came home in basically 82 and I sold half of my half to um, some of our managers. We had a number of senior managers, if you like, that ran you know, one person ran the workshop, one ran um, <clears throat> the marketing and someone ran the ski tours and that sort of thing. So there are about three or four of them that I I basically gifted it to them. And um, so we each had um, 25% and, uh, and they had 25%. And we actually sold out to them in 1986. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, Top Deck had around 70 buses in their fleet and their revenue is substantial, more than £15 million every year. And if you're wondering, that's equal to a couple of hundred million dollars in today's language. But around this time, Screw and his wife Jude decided to move back to Australia to raise their son Matt. It was here that Screw would start his very first travel agency. The business itself, we did tend to get a lot of our bookings at that stage out of Australia, even then, you know, quite a lot out of the UK because a lot of Australians and Kiwis and um, South Africans lived and Canadians lived in London. And that was quite a big part of the early days, you know, the early 70s. But later on, by by 76, 77, I'd set up uh, offices in London, uh, in most most uh, capitals of Australia, top deck booking offices, and we were repping travel agents and that sort of thing. So, by the um, early eighties, we were getting quite a bit of our business out of Australia by then. And um, yeah, we decided Jude and I decided to come home largely because Matt was due or born in um, in June nineteen eighty one, and um, we wanted, I suppose, to live in Australia to bring him up there. And uh, that was where we were doing a lot of our booking. So it was sort of a natural uh, place. Uh, Mick Carroll took over the, um, you know, the operations and he was very capable. He, he's still actually working in tour operations, actually, believe it or not. He's the uh, same age as me. And Bill uh, Bill helped him as well from about, I think, for, a, for about two or three years while I was back in Australia and uh, starting uh, as well as running the top deck offices, you know, starting up flight centre as well. So that sort of worked pretty well between the three of us. So you've come back to Brisbane and you started a, effectively a new business. I think you're obviously still running top deck. I mean, uh, I think it was a bloke called Dave Tomkin who, who maybe tells me about Dave. So he, he was involved in, I guess, what was bucket shops back, notice bucket shops back then. Uh, and you guys went into some sort of partnership with Dave. Uh, what, what was the sort of genesis of 
I guess, flights into version 1.0. Yeah, I knew Dave. Dave was a young guy in, in um, London. He probably was in 1980. He was probably, I don't know, 25. And um, we knew him. He worked for a guy, uh, Bevan Aldridge, who was famous for the walkabout club in those days in London. And uh, he had a shop called The Flight Shop, I think it was, in um, Kensington Church Street. Uh, got to know Dave. We used to go running together and that sort of thing. And he was obviously a pretty good operator, good salesperson. Uh, he wanted to come home at some stage. So I um, I think he was from Adelaide originally. And um, he decided to come to Sydney to um, do some sort of flight centre. And it was re- eventually called Sydney Flight Centre, opened in the Prudential Arcade in Sydney in 1982, I think March 1982. And um, I convinced him to come in on a 50-50 partnership uh, with Top Deck Travel, and uh, which he did. And um, we had a signed agreement, with, which Dave often um, talks about, which just was a sheet of paper with um, Dave Tonkin and um, Top Deck agreed to um, set up uh, Sydney Flight Centre 50-50. Um, and um, Dave does all the work and Top Deck take half the profits, I think, was the was the agreement. And... Um, Dave, after about a year, he, he'd made nearly $100,000 profit, believe it or not, in that first year. He came over to London when I was over there because I used to travel regularly to London and uh, said, look, I want to buy you out. Um, and, uh, yeah, Dave, uh, you know, great guy, but he was a, a bit of a loner. You know, he liked doing things himself, not being part of a big company. So uh, that's what he did. And so he bought us out for, I don't know, it might have been a hundred grand. Um, and... Um, then we um, we use that money to set up Brisbane Flight Centre and uh, a couple of other shops over the next year or so. Jeff Harris then came in and set up the flight shop. I think it was the flight shop in um, Hardware Lane in in Melbourne too. So you know it just started coming together then, and uh, we generally brought in someone who was going to be a generally a twenty five to thirty percent partner in the shop and they contributed to that and that's how we grew Flight Centre in the early days. The Australia to London flight, what, what did it cost before you guys started selling it and then how much did you save customers? So if someone bought for you versus from Amex or ANZ or whoever, they were, like how much were you genuinely sort of disrupting and saving the customer in the end? We, we, we also had London Flight Centre at the time. I, th- I think we opened London Flight Centre in about – uh, when we still owned Top Deck as part of Top Deck in 82, 83. Uh, so we obviously could buy tickets out of London as well. But uh, bear in mind, we, we've got a we've got a uh, an index called the Turner Index because, and what it does is it shows you the average salary, uh, amount of the average salary that it took from 1949 to about 2014 in terms of uh, London to Sydney in return. And yeah. b- believe it or not, it was I think it was eighteen months' salary in nineteen forty nine, and it got yeah. down in um, it got down two th- thousand fifteen to something like two weeks. But the actual prices didn't really change a lot. You know, the prices generally were around that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. And after COVID, um, I suspect they'll be pretty similar as well. So that's one of the challenges for travel agencies, isn't it? These days, it's hard to imagine the Australian travel industry without Flight Centre. But in the early 1980s, amazingly, the discount airfare market didn't even exist. Screw and his partners, Bill James and Jeff Harris, 
totally disrupted the industry, and they were profitable almost from day one. By the late 1980s, flights had grown to around 30 locations. When the business was floated on the ASX in 1995, they had more than 300 stores and were already expanding into Canada, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. But what makes Screw's story even more remarkable is that while Flight Centre was expanding, in the early days, it was actually illegal to discount airfares. But through some good luck, they managed to avoid ever getting into any serious trouble. It is probably surprising we didn't get caught, although um, some travel agents did. I remember at the time, agents did get caught, charged and fined. Uh, and it was only for a, a couple of years, maybe two years, three years, that um, it was illegal. So it probably became legal in about 84. And it was interesting because the first judge we had in the Singapore Airlines case with the ACCC, you may not remember that, but the judge says, you know, it's funny, here I am hearing a case where a travel agent is being accused of somehow of forcing an airline to discount airfare tickets. And I actually prosecuted... In, in 1982, I prosecuted travel agents for discounting them. He saw the irony of it even then. So, uh, but we never we never got caught, and uh, the law did change fairly not long after we started. So, uh, probably you could say we're pretty lucky there. In 1995, you guys listed flighties on the ASX. And- you actually weren't that big a business. Uh, I think you are doing maybe a billion PTV back then, uh, which, as it turns out, would be pretty small compared to what you grew to. But what was, what led that decision to list and, and how monumental do you think that was for, for the business in terms of your, your subsequent growth? It's, a, it's an interesting question because, yeah, there's a pros and cons of listing. It's relatively expensive. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, you, know uh, you, you get put under the microscope. But um, we were quite big on having staff uh, be part of the ownership of our organisation. We looked at a whole range of different schemes. We did, ha- we did have a individual shop scheme called Business Ownership Scheme, which was based on a dementia system. And um, the, the, the dementia system basically meant that, you know, if a shop, if you own 20% of a shop and it made $100,000 profit, well, you'd get... 20% of the profit each year return on that debenture. The, the industry in the late 80s uh, weren't really happy with what they could see us as bucket shops coming up and taking their business away from them. And that's when the TCF, the Travel Compensation Fund, was set up. So at that stage, we had 30 or 40 separate companies, uh, every, a different company for every shop that had uh, another shareholding in which basically all did. So um, that's when we set up that debenture debenture scheme but to, to I suppose the the debenture scheme replaced the individual shop ownership but we wanted to give people particularly some of our more senior people the chance to have a, an ownership we had a good look at it and really listing an IPO was the only reasonably simple and um, tradable way that we saw we could do it so that was a that was a primary reason at the time and when we floated we had, um, I think, we floated at ninety-five cents uh, to the market, and eighty-five cents to staff, and I think we had quite a few staff that managed to buy fifty thousand shares, and I think we ended up with about staff owning about six or seven percent of the company. 
let me just um, fast forward a couple of years. Uh, we'll, go, we'll get to the pandemic in a second, but before we had the pandemic, uh, you guys have to deal with some, another um, pretty big uh, deal, which was the, the global financial crisis. I think your, your share, Greg, Mark, could be slightly off. I think your share price dropped from like, twenty to maybe four bucks or something at the time. Um, somewhat irrationally now. I think you guys were, were sort of deep into discussions with private equity to, to potentially do a management buyout. Um, I'm not sure it has been reported, but not usually. So, how, how close did you guys come to buying the business back in what was it, 09, 2010? Uh, in what would have been an incredible deal, uh, but obviously didn't happen in the end. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what the share price got to, but it was pretty low. I think it might have might have dipped to four, but I think the deal we were looking at was probably about seven dollars, and um, uh, it was with private equity group. Uh, oh yeah, I, I won't mention their names. So I don't know whether it was public, but um, it, it was quite interesting because um, we were quite gung ho at that stage. We thought that. We were grossly undervalued, and um, it was an opportunity to, with private equity, to take the company back private. Um, I, I'd never had a lot of problems with being public, but um, it was just a good opportunity, and um, you know we were all fairly keen. Um, we had a board at the time. Unfortunately for us, two of the board um, disagreed with us and voted, um, basically voted against. Well, well, made it a lot harder for us to do, and I think one uh, one uh, investor who represented quite a few investors, uh, Lazard, you probably would have heard of them, um, vote on behalf of their investor voted against it, so we didn't get the required seventy five percent. I think we got sixty five percent voting for it. Uh, so the combination of the, if you could say, a slightly hostile board and um, the and Lazards. Um, meant it didn't happen and uh, we we didn't do it. Uh, I've got no regrets. I, I think, um, yeah, it could, it could have been interesting, could have been um, a, a different turn of events for us, but um, I, I think we got over it pretty quickly. Uh, we, as you can imagine, we got a new board fairly quickly, but um, that's all right. There's no hard feelings there. Most people probably know Flight Centre as being the biggest Main Street travel agent in the country, selling leisure travel to millions of Australians. But in the early 2000s, they did their next big pivot to Flights Into Corporate, which is a multi-billion dollar business in its own right. After Flights Into had expanded its leisure operations into Canada, South Africa, and the UK, an employee called Heather Gilbert decided to set up the very first Flights Into Corporate under Jeff Harris in Melbourne. The business grew slowly but surely in the beginning, and by 2003, they started acquiring other smaller travel businesses around Australia as well as the UK and the US, which they rolled into the corporate side of Flight Centre. And that's when their corporate sales really started to take off. And while leisure travel has been hit really hard by the pandemic, Flight Centre's corporate business continues to go from strength to strength, winning billions of dollars of new business since 2020. But few industries were quite as affected by COVID as the travel sector. COVID wasn't the first challenge that Screw ever faced in business but no one was quite prepared for what this one would turn into. I think January, February, March, um, yeah, we've seen this before. It, it could be disruptive, you know, it could be a bit like 9-11 or SARS-1, but the reality didn't get hit home until I came back from London for a short trip in, uh, I think it was March the 12th, 
2020, and I think the next weekend, um, SCOMO shut the borders, uh, Trump had shut the uh, Atlantic uh, flights from Europe. Uh, we really realised then that, that we, we, were, we were in trouble. And I, I know I got back about the same time as Mel Waters-Ryan, who was our CEO of Leisure, and um, we immediately got into a global, um, our global MDs and my team, which we call the task force, Chris Galanti's the um, global CEO. He's based in the UK of uh, corporate as well. So between uh, there's probably about 20 people and, and they have to hand it to Mel. She organised a lot of this. T- straight away we, we had two meetings a day, um, two crisis meetings a day, depending on where you were in the world, to um, basically to start slashing costs. And uh, you know, we our costs, as you can imagine, were um, around that $230 million a month. And our income uh, from uh, April, May went to basically zero. So, you know, um, uh, our sales were about $2 billion a month, went to, you know, maybe $50 million a month or something like that for a few months. So we just had to uh, find every, every, you know, cut our costs and, and as you know, stand in a lot of people, um, let a lot of shops go negotiate with uh, landlords and everyone else that would listen. So there was a very hectic period for probably three months. Uh, for the first couple of six weeks, we were probably working seven days a week, having meetings twice a day uh, with the global people to just try to stabilise things and, and get everything under control, which which happened probably after the first 10 weeks, 10 or 12 weeks, and um, then gradually working out the, what money we needed and, and how we would... Uh, find our way out of this. So it was sort of getting into hibernation and um, and survival, and then and then um, working out how you're going to thrive in the um, you know in the longer term. So um, and we've come back now. This is this is only 20 months, as you know, and I think we're back to about 25 to you know somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of pre-COVID TDV. So we've still got a long way to go. So I want to take you back to those those really difficult weeks, March and April. How worried were you that the business wouldn't survive, and how did that affect? How did that affect you emotionally, knowing this is such an, a brilliant business, due to potentially no fault of your own, an existential virus that had nothing to do with our country initially, anyway, could could destroy what was such a, a incredible business a month earlier? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, we'll probably we'll uh, put it this way. I was probably uh, so involved with my guys in terms of um, working to minimise our costs and um, and uh, maximise our liquidity. That didn't have too much time for reflection, but I, I, know, I know it was a very worrying time. You know, it, it, it was, there was no guarantee of survival at that stage. Um, you know, if, if the capital markets had turned on us uh, or wouldn't have supported us, well, you know, uh, not only us, of course, but a lot of other businesses, not not only in travel, but imagine if uh, that coincided with the GFC, where money became very tight. Um, yeah, it would have been um, it would have been a road smash, not only for us, but uh, for a lot of industry. So um, we were probably fortunate, I think, that during that time there seemed to be quite a lot of liquidity in the in the you know the Western world, at least anyway. So. Um, Generally, even though our um, 
we, you know, we managed to raise plenty of cash and um, believe it or not, that ability to raise cash for businesses like ours, uh, w- which we don't actually need now and I, I hopefully we won't need any more over the next four or five years, it, it was crucial. So, it, you know, probably you could put it down to luck and timing, nothing to do with us, but um, that's, that's the luck of the game, I guess. Yeah, as tough as it was for travel and it has been for travel over the last as we both know, for 18 months, there's some sectors have done really well. And obviously, e-commerce has done really well. Another sector that possibly surprisingly has done well is is the bike sector. And and potentially due to good luck or great management, White Centre and, and, and your son, Matt, own, I think, Australia's largest bike retailer called 99 Bikes. I think you've got 50 stores nationally and maybe some internationally. How has is, how is that business gone uh, over the last 18 months? Yeah, well, Matt, Matt actually set it up with one shop 14 years ago. Two years later, Flight Centre bought a small but important wholesale business, basically wholesaling Merida bikes and, and other and other products. And at that stage, he had about five or six shops. So we combined them two into a wholesale retail business, which wasn't too different to what Flight Centres looked like. So they were just hitting their straps. So I think probably... By 2019, they had about 50 shops. They were looking at New Zealand. The wholesale business was going quite well. And then in 2020, with COVID, they made about 18 or 19 million. But this last year, they've now got about 70 shops, including about eight in New Zealand. And uh, they did about 350 million in sales, but about um, 54, 54 million in profit. So, you know, it's become quite substantial and, and yeah a lot of that was due to the COVID demand but a lot of it they they took big punts on buying a lot of stock up at the right time so where a lot of bike shops just didn't have enough stock and and even though they didn't have enough stock they they were much better stocked than most of the people so and now this stock is still in short supply but um they've consistently over over ordered and um so far it's paid off for them and uh yeah, there's still plenty of products that you just can't get hold of in Australia for love nor money, but it, it'll come back. Matt, I know Matt thinks it'll take a couple of years for it to really come back, but just in, in terms of when he started, he did take quite a bit of um, the, his systems and training, uh, a few of his people from Flight Centre, uh, a couple of key people, but, um, you, you know, generally for the last probably nine years that they've basically done their own thing we've had very little we have one person who um who sits on the board and that's that's basically our our input at the moment one of the i think one of your great strengths as a leader as a ceo has just been your ability to constantly evolve and i guess to, when you stay at the top of 40 years you sort of always need that but you've been from you're a tour operator and started a discount flight seller and you became a sort of global giant and now you're, you're vertical flight centers owns DMCs and hotel operators and obviously it's corporate. How do you evolve? How do you think you've evolved as a leader since 1972 when you were buying buses to 2021 when you're managing a, what was a $24 billion business? How have you had to change your leadership style, how you've delegated, how have you grown over that over that period? Oh, that's a, that's a really tough one. I mean, look, um, I think everyone in life changes a reasonable amount. Certainly, I know running top deck in your twenties that was a stressful time. Mainly not just because of of what, who you are or what you're doing, but um, it is a stressful job running old double decker buses across Europe and Asia. 
and uh, having breakdowns and accidents and that sort of thing. So, you know, running a travel agency, as I said to Bill and Jeff, it's a doddle. You know, after what we've done with Top Deck, um, running shops all over the place uh, is nothing. But, you know, it does it does teach you to calm down a bit. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm much, I was much calmer after um, the Top Deck experience, partly because, you know, running travel agencies, it's more, a, you know, an eight to six sort of job, although, you know, obviously weekends are far more important now, but with a growing family and all that sort of thing, I think uh, it was just um, a reasonably calm occupation to take hold of. And I think probably... Uh, over time, I've just become a bit more, um, a bit more easygoing in terms of um, how to take business and that. And uh, my reaction to the, um, you know, COVID restrictions and all that probably would have been different thirty or forty years ago. But I think um, it's, you're, you're in a different organisational way, and I just know in travel, particularly, you know, there are a lot of players that uh, don't have the capability of raising money and, um, you know, they must be, a lot of them, I, I know, are, are sort of either desperate or, or having to run on the smell of an oily rag, which is, you know, means very hard to protect your key assets in a business like that. I mean, but my other thing, Adam, is business is important in some ways. Um, like, well, it is important. I mean, it's important to people who work here. It's important for people whose family depends on the income that work or, or investment here provides. But in the end, it's not life and death. Uh, you know, businesses do come and go. And I'd certainly like our business to be a long, long-lasting business, uh, you know, multi-generational. You've probably heard of The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I think he, he encapsulates that quite well, that it's, it's not about a, a strong return to the investors only or, or, or making a lot of money. It, it is about surviving and thriving, um, which is, I think is one of his terms that he uses quite a lot. And um, we certainly try to take that on that, that as a business now, whether it's Flight Centre or the Pedal Group or, or, or other things, that, that it, it is long-term, it is about long-term multi-generational business and by multi-generational I mean you know that leaders and managers and people come and go uh, but the business um, survives for generations if you like and and thrives it's no use surviving is okay when you're in a COVID crisis but uh, in the end you need to thrive as well. You've uh, aside from flighties and obviously 99 bikes you and your wife Jude have created one of Australia's most incredible brands and spices retreats which is uh, a premium luxury regional uh hotel brand essentially how, how important has spices been for, for both you and jude in being obviously a different business that you, you guys own completely and, and have created from scratch how much focus do you put on spices and and how important is that is that to you guys yeah i mean i think um yeah that's we've we've been involved in that now for 22 years or something i think since the first property and um the spices brand's been around about 10 or 12 years i think and and i can honestly say that i don't have too much to do with it we we're quite involved in wildlife protection and habitat protection on the properties where um, some of the retreats are and generally jude has managed that but she generally has uh professional managers dave asif is her 
CEO at the moment, and he's I think he's been CEO for 10 years, but she still has quite an influence on it. But uh, she's quite quick to point out that I don't really have a lot of say in it. Um, I quite like um, going there and staying at some of the places and uh, uh, probably more than her because for her it's, you know, there's a bit of work, element of work for me. It's just fun. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I must admit, along with her, quite proud of that. I think we don't get everything right, but it's, um, they are a, a great um, collection of retreats and the Scenic Rim Trail, which is fairly recent, it's a five to seven day walk in luxury eco-lodges, you know, it is stunning and it goes through some of the Queensland's most stunning scenery and that a lot of people don't even know exists. So, uh, yeah, those are things It's yeah, it's 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 great, but I can't take too much credit for it. And, and you've, you've obviously been, you've been at the top of your game for, for 40 years. Do you have an end game? Or will you ever, will you, do you ever see yourself slowing down or, or you, you've got another 20 years left in your thing? Look, I think, I think I'm sure it's like you, at all. maybe it's not like you, but uh, I certainly want to see our organisation out of this COVID uh, issue or problem, uh, which which I think will be the next three or four years. And, you know, you can never say never, but I I, I can't imagine wanting to retire, but um, I, at some stage I probably won't be given any choice. And I think the main thing is, if, you know, if you've got your – if you're physically and mentally fit, and uh, yeah, as you get older, both those things can um, become a problem. Um, you, yeah, you don't have a choice, but uh, I'd like to say another five or ten years, but I don't know what the board thinks about that. And that was Graham Turner from Flight Centre. And while he may have had 40 years at the helm, Screw certainly isn't slowing down. Just before we recorded this podcast, Screw played in a winning game of touch rugby for the Flight Centre team. Producer is Lindsay Gray. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.